Hi everyone, we're back here at the Iris Pod, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by Adrian Swinsco, author, um, advisor, and all things customer experience. And I guess I want to start with what does Punk CX actually mean? That's your book, right? Well, it's 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 one of them. Um, so let's do this. Get rid of all this. I'll I've done. I've written about four. Well, I've not written about four. I've written four. One I can't show you because it's sort of like out of print. I don't have it here. And then that one, which is How to I, that was a 2016 thing. That was, I would say, grown-up publishing because that was published by Pearson. So like oh, with somebody yeah. else doing it, so it's kind of nice. And yeah. I didn't want to do another sort of formal one because like who needs another theory of everything, right? So I wrote that that came out in 2019, Punk CX. And then this is its follow-up second album, as it were, Kind of Punk, Punk, XL. Punk, Punk XL, which has came out late um, 2021. Now, the, the the whole thing about Punk CX, the whole hypothesis behind it was that, you know, there's a, a customer experience is like this huge space, right? And it's just exploding. Lots of activity, lots of enthusiasm, lots of different things kind of going on. But I was sort of getting frustrated by this idea that there's all this activity, but very... Not as lot, not a lot of significant improvement going on in some of the outcomes, right? Some of the customer outcomes and some of the employee outcomes, and that sort of frustrated me. And in the conversation with somebody over probably too many pints of Guinness, a friend of mine, Oshin, um, and I, who was in the same same space, and I sort of blurted out, I think in what drunks call a moment of clarity, kind of like I wish somebody would do something a bit more punk. Um. And being a fan of punk music, uh, I sort of thought about that a little bit. And um, and it made me think about where punk came from. Now, punk explored at the back of progressive rock in the 1970s. Now, progressive rock, it, whilst popular, and I like bits of it, but not a lot of it, but it's got, it was known for its kind of like uh, how elaborate it could be, its musicality, all these different sort of things. It's almost like how many notes you can play. Kind of like synthesis, multiple synthesizers going to be played at the same time. It's almost a bit like you need to have a PhD in music to be able to play this thing. But punk was like going, bugger that. Everybody can have a go. Kind of let's kind of get stuck in. And that struck me because it's like pro progressive rock was this almost like got more interested in itself than its kind of than its constituents, its fans, as it were. And punk was like back to basics, all yeah. heart and emotion. Anybody can get involved. And it struck me that there's there's this possible similarity that actually the CX space is looking or sharing a lot of the same characteristics as the prog rock space did in the 1970s, like overly codified, certified, benchmark framework, metrics, yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. And it was losing sight of the people that were most should be most important, i.e. customers. And therefore, I thought, well, what would then a punk version look like? So that was like the hypothesis in the frame. And the book is inspired by punk music, but it's also inspired by kind of like, you know, you wouldn't want to take, um, you wouldn't want 50,000 words of black ink on white paper and call it a, and put punk on the front of it. That just wouldn't work, right? So we had to style it. We wanted to style it rather a bit like a music album. So rather than having chapters, you have tracks. So everything is short and punchy and to the point, sometimes a little bit profane, sometimes a little bit controversial. Yeah. You don't have to like it. Like any album, 
some many albums you don't like from track one to the, the last track, you've got to usually have two, three, maybe four sort of like tracks that are stand out that you listen to. Same thing with this is you don't have to like all of it, but it's there. It's, it's almost like it's there to shake the tree a little bit and say, come on, folks, shake it up. do some work, do some better work, pull your socks up. Where, um, where do you, I, I remember something, someone I work with saying uh, something particularly smart to me and it was about, you know, if, if you, how can you ever expect to create a fantastic customer experience when you don't have a very good employee experience? Yeah. Where does it stem from for you? Is, is this something that is a cultural thing that starts, you know, inside the company and that everyone has to live and breathe it? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing is, here's the here's the fascinating thing. Is much of this stuff isn't new at all, right? It's been around for, it's just like, it's almost like common sense that gets repackaged. The idea that um, you can deliver a great service or a great experience by treating your employees like shit is just like, it logically doesn't make any sense, right? Um, like the Quakers, like the Rantries and the Cadburys and all these kind of people of the world kind of knew that back in 17th, 18th century, right? When they kind of they built the factories and then they built schools and houses and community facilities and all that sort of stuff because they realized that actually, if you want the whole person, you've got to take care of the whole person, Right. I just make some sense. Human yeah, beings, right? Yeah, exactly. If you want kind of like that, that and that's kind of where they look at it. So the, the employee experience and the, and the customer experience, that link is all kind of there. And in academic terms, that sort of idea has been around since the service profit chain back in the 80s, I think it was, where it said that your employees are satisfied, you're more likely to have better business kind of results and your customers are going to be more satisfied. So all this stuff is not new. It's just getting reframed, repackaged in this kind of 21st century. So it's absolutely um, essential that you get your employees involved and you look to their concerns and you enable and you support them in order to, 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 to deliver that better experience, whether it's to do with how they directly interact with customers and how you help and support them do that, or how it's they, they build things and uh, that, that customers are going to kind of use or engage with. And all of this, it's all important, it's all, but it's, and that's why I wrote this sort of the, the Excel book, because I don't think it's, I think it's become increasingly important, not just about the work context, but how companies are just as agents within society. You know, what is your environmental impact? What is your social stand? How are you contributing to your community? Kind of what does your brand stand for? All these, all these things as both customers and employees, they're important to us. And so you have to, we have to look at it kind of much, much more broadly. So it's not just about the customer experience. I think it's about experience more broadly. I feel like a lot of it at the moment for many companies, there are some companies that stand out and do, do this fantastically across a kind of unified comms perspective, which is yeah. you know, the, the kind of buzz, the buzzword of the moment. But I feel like a lot of companies are doing this just to check a box. I, yeah, I yeah. was... Um, I was watching with intrigue the, the the British Airways social media channels just giving a standard response. Okay, it's signed off with a name, but 
you know, all their systems went down in the last, you know, couple of days. And I was just thinking, this is just a, there's no customer service truly happening on, on, on Twitter here, really. Um, it's just a checkbox that people feel like they can go and bleat and moan and that they get a reply. Therefore, we did a good thing and we, and we did a good customer experience. Yeah. I think the thing is, is that um, some of this sort of the pace of change catches many, um, many kind of many brands out, many, particularly many sort of like, traditional brands like say like British Airways. British Airways has always prided itself on its service on planes and everything else. But actually what British Airways hasn't really realized and never really sort of like uh, caught up with is British Airways was at that sort of level, kind of like, you know, um, near the top kind of well-respected airlines. And then along came Emirates, Singapore, and all these other kind of new airlines that just took their whole service sort of thing to a different level. And British Airways never caught up. You know, I can add actually add Virgin into that. So Emirates and Virgin and Singapore and, and Thai and all these kind of the, 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 the sort of the, the airlines that really went in on sort of service. And whether that's in person, at the desk, kind of, you know, in the call center or the contact center via social media, they just kind of, had a holistic sort of view on it. I think British Airways has just never, never quite caught up. I don't yeah. think. And 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 when things happen and you get put under pressure, so this is the interesting thing, is you know how there's the there's like a we have most well many people think many people use like a bell curve to describe things, right? Yeah. And what's fascinating is that we tend to understand what our um, service and experience looks like in the, the, the large chunk of the bell curve, right? That sort of like plus or minus sort of 25% around the kind of the, the middle. But here's the thing is actually the stuff that we really crow about and really brag about sort of stuff and the things that we really shout and scream about, either really good stuff or the really bad stuff tends to happen in the extremes. Mm. At the tails, right? But the problem is we don't design and we don't test our policies and procedures and everything else in terms of how we respond to those things. How do we capitalize them? Because and because we 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 we're pretty much kind of managing for the mean, right? Rather than for the extremes. And so we don't stress test things, we get caught out. And when we get caught out because we're not being prepared. It shows up, like you say, the kind of the BA example with the kind of the, the, the customer service on Twitter and everything else, and they're a bit like their, their system's gone down, which is not the first time, I hasten to add. Right. <laughs> and it's a bit like you haven't learned the lesson. That's so true. Um, I feel like this has really challenged companies over the last couple of years as they, um, they've had to navigate you know, a disruptive world. Uh, I saw a, an article yesterday there's, I think, something like 1.3 million call center desks in the Philippines, and they've mandated government mandate. Everyone's got got to come back to the to the office, and there's a good number um, unionized members of their call center association that are saying, "No thanks, we're going to continue working at home. Equip us here." Yeah. How do you see that moment in the world having kind of ushered in, accelerated in a, a new? mode of working and how that manifests itself in terms of uh, customer experience operations and and the way that 
every company just has to up its game now to satisfy the needs of their employees, but also their customers. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think what the what the pandemic has done is um, it's forced us to act like and at pace, and it's shown up a whole bunch of strengths and weaknesses in many organisations. Um, and the idea about telecommuting or high, or remote working has has been around for for years, if not decades, and we've always had that ability to do that. But we've just been held by people like, oh no, it's never going to work. No, no, no. And that that basically sits into basically what people think about work and how it's organized and how we control it and how we manage it and, and everything else. But what the pandemic has shown is actually what is possible. And what is possible is kind of way greater than what we assumed we could do effectively. And what's brilliant is that people and their ingenuity and their resilience and their abilities is all kind of shown up. Now, that's great. And some people have really got used to it. And some people have gone, and there's this whole spectrum of options. Some people have gone, oh, no, we believe we want to go back to the work. And that's the sort of broad consensus. They're sort of in the minority. There's some people that are, are, are gone, that's it, we're done. We're going completely remote. We might see each other once a year, maybe, but we're completely remote. Um, and they're, I think, probably in their the minority. And if you go back to the bell curve, you've got this bit, then you've got the, the large majority of people are going, hmm, yeah, we're probably going to do some sort of hybrid sort of thing. Because what they understand is that people have got used to it. There's so many kind of benefits that comes with, the, with working with hybrid that people have started to enjoy and got used to. I, the saving of time and you know, particularly tra- time and expense around traveling and commuting and all these different things, the added flexibility and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and and on the flip side, companies have been able to save money by rationalizing real estate and office kind of costs and infrastructure costs and have been found a better way of being able to do it so that we can invest our employees in their setup and save money on the kind of the, the retail, well, on the, the real estate side of things. And you go like, that's okay, brilliant. But what they've also started to recognize is that the things that you also lose by being remote, like particularly in the, the, in the, if I think about the contact center space with, or the customer service support help sort of space, What's interesting is what we don't necessarily recognize because people are talking about, oh, are people working, performance, all these different things. That's fine. But also the one thing we don't, we, we've seen a rise in is that people feeling, people that work in service and support feeling burnt out, you know, just kind of like tired, overwhelmed, all these different things. Because what we don't recognize that they miss, we often don't recognize that they miss is that, if we're sat in a room or in a cluster of desks and we're all taking calls or answering emails, the social benefit that you get from being around in close proximity to people. So like if, I have, if I've had a call that's come in that's been particularly, or I've had a customer that's maybe kind of had a bad experience and they've been having at it and I'm trying to help them and it's like, and I don't care who you are, that's going to affect you. Yes. Right? 
And you share the fatigue, you share the, the stress of that instance. Have you dealt with that similar situation before? Let's f work this through together or just... Or just somebody just puts a hand on your shoulder and just goes, yeah. hey, okay. Tom, it's all right. I tell you what, that looked like it was a hard call. Why don't you just go get yourself a cup of tea or something and take five? Right. I'll cover for you. And you don't yeah. get that if you're working in like a second room or something in your house or off your kitchen table, whatever, wherever it might be. And so getting the the injection of the good stuff, that sort of social support, and then also the the face-to-face -face interaction and just the, the very human side of things that come with, which feed into innovation and collaboration and all these different sort of things. So we've got to strike that balance. That's the kind of thing. And I think what people are trying to do right now is trying to figure out is what is that balance? Yes. And there is no straightforward answer to that. And that will that'll kind of work on like a slider depending on kind of who you are and what do you do and in, in, in what sort of problems and challenges you're facing. So I think it's TBD in terms of what the answer is. A lot of people are looking for the answer, but then they'd be looking for the answer all the time anyway for just in different kind of like parts of their lives. But it's like, this is just another place where the answer is going to emerge for them. You touched on something interesting, which is the tool set that is equipping those, uh, those employees that are, and now, and you, and you said it exactly, I think actually a lot of companies have not really um, appreciated that, you know, not everyone has their perfect little office set up. They don't have a dedicated office in their house. They have a kitchen workbench or, you know, multi-generational household where you know, they're working from their bedroom and they're trying to offer up a fantastic customer experience or whatever it might be to, to their customer base. Um, you know, certainly what the, the opportunity that we've seen and, you know, a lot of our clients are, are contact centers that are trying to bring uh, rationalization and control to an otherwise uncontrollable environment as it relates to noise. Just tell me about what the kind of landscape looks like in, in your experience of the tool set, the things that we need to equip um, staff with as they work in this emerging hybrid uh, pattern. I mean... Tom, that's a great question. And and, and I, I wrote something about this. Oh, crumbs. I think it might have been back end of 2020. And I was like, I, I, and it, you're absolutely spot on. It's like this idea that working from home used to be, if you were going to facilitate that as a company, working from home used to be like, here's your laptop, here's your mobile phone, crack on. Yeah. Right? <laughs> And then you're like going, hmm, that's sort of not really sufficient anymore. And and I know that there's companies that have responded to that. You kind of mentioned the Philippines. I remember the hearing a story about one company, a contact center, one brand that was working with a contact center, outsourced, outsourcing much of their customer service uh, department to a contact center, an outsourced provider, BPO small specialized one and when the pandemic hit everybody went remote and the, what the 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 contact center management did was like make sure everyone everybody had uh laptops and and headphones and everything else but then they also figured out via the local telecoms kind of companies and broadband providers they were like going we're going to pay you a stipend or get you a whole bunch of deals so you can get upgraded broadband and stuff and it made me think about some of these sort of things we talked about yeah where are you situated and kind of what is it you kind of do and it's made me start to think about what is your 
what's in your home working kit bag, as it were. So if you can have said something, go, here's your stuff. There you go. And you've got, and it's like, remember, I don't know if you remember it, like Sport Billy back in the day, the cartoon where he had this little bag and he'd pull out things like cars. I'm older than you think. Ah, well, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, but that's that sort of thing. It's like, you know, you, you know, you, do we th- need to think about the desk that people have and the internet connection and the chair that they've got and the kind of headphones and the mic and all these different things, depending on kind of what kind of job that they, that, they, that they do. Do they need a second, do they need a laptop that plugs into a second screen or do they need two screens or kind of a, a keyboard? Or what is it that we can need to think about all of these stuff things? Do we, you know, do we need to think about what people have in the office that was great and good and, and help them do the job? And are we creating that or helping people create that for themselves in their in their home? Or are they, are we paying them a, stipend that says go and buy your kit here's a here's a supplier get it kind of like sent to you or how are we kind of doing that and i think many brands have done that um but i think that will evolve as well and it might be evolved because actually we'll do different type of work at different times and this is where you go back to the hybrid sort of thing is like we're probably going to need to partition our weak much more smartly so it allow us to do a different type of work then we'll end up having the right sort of equipment for the right sort of work in the right place if that yeah. makes sense absolutely i mean I, I remember back to you know when you you would have your health and safety assessment of your desk set up are you sitting correctly do you need one of these little risers for your laptop you know all of this good stuff and it, it it's just moved on the the, the demands and you know what we regard as being the right way to do things has moved on and it really leads nicely into the the mental health side of things and you know how uh, fatigue and and uh, you know hours spent on online meetings and hours spent on you know 50 60 even 100 customer contacts per day and all of those customers are in different locations and they're walking down the street and they've got their stresses of the day. Mm-hmm. How, how, do we, how do we make that aspect a core thing in, in what it means to have punk CX? Well, I mean, I th- what, I would, what I would say is like, um, it's a great question. I, I, and it's, I don't know if I've ever been asked this before, but, the, um, but thinking about it, it makes me think about performance. And we have to think about what is what does good look like at different sort of times. You know, we know from particularly in service and you know people that are working in service and help and support that when people work in short bursts, they tend to work at, a, at like a, a higher performance level and and a, and, a, and a higher kind of quality level when they work in short kind of bursts. So rather than being like you're on the phones eight hours a day, as it were, then that tends to be you probably go up and then you'll start to kind of like taper off, as it were. So you've got to be very you've got to be much smarter in terms of how you partition your time and how you manage your time to to, to manage performance sort of levels. And I think that's a bit like um, you know a puncturing that you know a good puncture is going to be you know doesn't need to be an opus it doesn't need to be 12 minutes long right it can be two and a half minutes long it's like bang 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 
you got the message. Now, next. And I think that's the kind of point is we need to think much more clearly about what does good look like? What does performance, good performance look like? And also how much crap we're throwing into the system. You know, I, I have a thing where I can say to people, I challenge them. I say, I think that, um, first of all, I said to them, where on anybody's job description does it say that you have to kind of attend as many meetings as physically possible on a <laughs> weekly basis? Yeah. You never see that anywhere, right? But meetings are like over meeting is like a plague. Um, and, and it's a curse on productivity and performance and all these different things. And I say to I try and challenge people to say like, why don't you do, you need to create some space to do the work, right? Whatever that, whatever that might be. I said, why did, so why didn't you go and um, just start opting out of meetings randomly that you just, one that you're not interested in or you don't think you need to be in them and just keep going and aim to cut out 20, 30% of all the meetings that you're in over, over a course of a uh, course of a weekly basis. In fact, imagine it's a bit like cutting your, your fingernails, right? You just keep cutting them back until you kind of, you hit the quick and then it starts to bleed. Or at some point, somebody starts to no notice you go, Oi, why are you? <laughs> because I bet you, you get to the kind of point, you can clean out a whole bunch of stuff before anybody notices. Because there's this, and then I said that to somebody and somebody was like, Oh, that's a great idea. But, then there's the whole FOMO thing. You're like going, oh, get over it. You know, you work with people that either they work, either work, you work with them or they work for you or you kind of, you're looking after them. Well, trust them to yeah. do the, to be great and to do the job. And if you don't need to be involved, then stop micromanaging. Yeah. And stop buying in and, and focus on your own stuff. You don't have to be involved in anything because actually it's stressing you out. You're making overtired. You're probably underperforming all this kind of all, this own thing. And, and it's like, you know what? Just get more, um, just pay more attention to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Absolutely. And um, the, the, the content um, more than, than the, the quantity um, and the quality of that, that content. And that brings me nicely on to really the, the last point that I want to cover um, today. And, and that's about personalization mm -hmm. and that mix between, you know, we need to achieve scale uh, with digital solutions, but we want to personalize and make the, the human being at the center of it, whether that's the employee or the customer, they're the hero really. And the customer, you know, yeah. the customers where the money really comes in um, and that's what drives the lifeblood of businesses and, and you you ran a, a a workshop on this and this is an area that I, I know you uh, you have a lot to say about so how do we really achieve the authenticity of the actual subject matter in the conversation and bring that that touch point um, to the fore and make it real rather than just I don't know something that's again a check a checkbox exercise yeah I mean so personalization um, I mean, every, I think it, all the research shows that, you know, brands want to deliver it, customers want it, employees want it too, because it's like becomes like a double-sided thought thing. You want, employees want this 
more personalized, tailored sort of experience that's kind of that works them. Kind of what do people kind of want? They want a fair wage, and they want to do they do they want to do work that matters, and they want to feel that they 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 are they're listened to and they're heard and respected, and they've got an opportunity to grow and develop. So, given that sort of auton- autonomy, as it were, I think it was. Dan Pink talks about MAP, so Mastery Autonomy Purpose. If you get those sort of things checked, they're sitting on a bed of fair reward for a decent, you know, decent kind of job. Then you've got help me be a master of my, you know, my current sort of skill set. Get, let me kind of like be responsible for delivering something. So give me some autonomy, and then make me understand that um, the work that I do is important, and it it figures into a bigger kind of picture. Do that sort of stuff, and you've generally kind of nailed the whole individual drive and motivations sort of thing. Anyway, I digress. But then on the personalization side of things, so we know that the data says that brands want to do it, customers want to, employees kind of want to, but on the customer side of things, um, what's happening is that we're like this. They're just not hitting the mark. Um, And... And I think that that's so that's becoming more complicated because of change in data and privacy rules, removal of kind of cookies, all that type of type of stuff. And now we've got to, you know, um, it's not a spray and pray type of thing, and with it, with a <laughs> under a sort of like with it covered with a veneer of oh, it's personalised because we've got your name right at the top of an email. Actually, kind of the bar has kind of gone up, and and people that's going to require brands to do different things. One, they've got to have to get a hold of their first party data, stuff that's kind of going on because they can't rely on second and third party anymore because all the things, all the rules are changing. But first party data is only far, it only takes you far enough. You're still going to be imputing from data. And there's, you know, and the leaders in this field are going to be the ones that go out and, and, and ask the customers to help them define what a, individual personalized experience means for them. And yes, the technology is there to be able to do that at scale, but not many people are doing that because actually it requires marketeers or people in that sort of experience professionals to go out and do different things, i.e., <laughs> shock horror, go and talk to customers. Oh, scary. You know, but that's where the clue is. And it's the same applies to employees. Too many, too many executives go and do this stuff because they think they're kind of the, the, you know, these omniscient kind of beings that are kind of paid to make all these big decisions. They do all this stuff and they wonder why stuff doesn't work because they haven't actually gone and consulted people. They haven't gone and gone, hey, Tom, we're, we're thinking about kind of making some changes around this. What do you think? And then you go and be open to the idea that going, you know what? I think that's a crock. You shouldn't do it. This, however, would be better. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks very much. We'll go and take a look at that. Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff, that consultative approach, like people don't want crap. They want to be involved. If you ask them, they'll tell you. And that's the kind of the point. It's like, so the whole personalization thing is it requires people, and this is the whole thing about the the punk thing is not revolutionary. It's just do something different that might make you feel slightly vulnerable and but because you're going asking for input from other kind of people which might kind of give the might um it might provide you with some input that you're not expecting so that's sort of a rational fear and we go through waves of this stuff like i don't know if you remember back in the day where where people were talking about 
before asking customers for feedback became ubiquitous. You remember that sort of time where people were like, we can't ask customers for feedback. What are they going to say? They might tell us that we're shit. (laughs) They might start shouting at us. And you're like going... But that's based on an assumption that people are still going to buy your kind of like your your stuff, even though it might be shit. You're like going, customers aren't stupid. It can be overdone though, right? Because I, I mean, my bugbear, and I, and by the way, I think you know GDPR, you know, has many many vital important um, aspects to it and privacy in general as a concept. But it's I'm not sure its application has been particularly. Um, uh, to the spirit of what was intended in, in many instances. Um, you know, there's, but we, there's challenges and policies that we need to navigate. My personal bugbear is where you go to a website that you've never been to before and it's asking you immediately, one second in, whether your experience on this website has been a good one. Do you want to fill in a survey quickly? No, I don't want to fill in a survey quickly. Mm. Just go away. Let me do what I want to do with this website. I've just spent five minutes filling in your GDPR um, form. So there's challenges there, but it's definitely something that if it's done well, works for the customer and obviously for the, for the company as well. Oh, completely. I mean, I think that, you know, that the, was it the, the is it political kind of terms that talk about the industrial military complex, Well, there's an industrial survey complex, you know, and you end up, we end up getting them and, and there's no, there's no surprise that people like yourself and many other customers get fatigued and annoyed by some of this sort of stuff because it's done to death and done in a way that makes no sense. Um, and it's at like the beginning of it, it's like, poof, we have to survey it. You're like going, I'm sorry, that's more about you and kind of an ill-timed kind of process than it is about anything to do with my experience. I've arrived. I haven't done anything yet. You know, and so it's not empathetic. It's not understanding. It's not in my shoes. It doesn't get me. It's all about you. And that in this whole kind of customer kind of era, that stuff shows up really, really badly. I mean, like I got one from a major airline, similar to the one that you talked about earlier. Um, <laughs> after I just checked in for a flight, they asked me like, how was your experience? I'm like, God, I just checked in. The major experience is the flying bit. Why? <laughs> can, hang on, I'm not even on the plane as yet. Yeah. It's like, oh, and by the way, they never sent me another one after I landed. Yeah, that's the 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 little fanfare of Ryanair when it lands on time is always one that entertains me. Um, they don't play any tune. They didn't do that kind of wah, 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 when it's delayed or anything like that. But yeah. anyway, um, Punk XL um, and Punk CX. Uh, the XL stands for Experience Leadership, right? So, is yes. this a playbook? Is this a playbook that leaders of CX, or is this a book for 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 anyone really that's interested about driving exceptional customer experiences? I think it's kind of it's more the latter. It's not really a kind of a playbook because actually, it's it's really kind of the idea that. And I asked a bunch of people from around the world to to contribute to it. Um, because one, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't mad and they wouldn't have lent their name to it if I was completely kind of like kind of mad, which was great. And it also added richness and depth and breadth to it. But the idea that, uh, like I said earlier, it's like, I don't think it's it's no longer sufficient to talk about just a customer experience. We have to talk about experience in a broader sort of thing. And what this book aims to do is to 
raise the specter of this idea that there's a thing called experience leadership. Because we talk about brand leadership, we talk about market leadership, we talk about technological leadership. But I don't think we talk about experience leadership and what that means in a holistic, integrated, systemic sort of way. And I think we need to start. So the book is almost a bit of a, a, a it's like a conversation starter. We're saying, I think this thing exists. These people agree with me. I think we need to kind of talk about it. And so it starts to look at it from a, what does that mean from an individual leader perspective? What does it mean from a team perspective? And your kind of culture and employee experience, what does it mean for an organizational perspective in terms of how you set up and how you do things? Also customer perspective, and then beyond that into the wider sort of world. And so it's there to to nudge, to, to inform, to cajole, to interrogate different kind of aspects of it. There's a beautiful quote that, that I think really sums up the book because like you say, there's some companies that just do this stuff. It's just part of who they are sort of thing. And there's some companies that really kind of aspire to it. And there's some companies that are just wandering around going, what day is it? <laughs> yeah. But there's a beautiful quote that I, I, I use in the, in the beginning of the book. And it comes from... Uh, Woody Guthrie, you know, the famous kind of folk singer. And he was, when Woody Guthrie was asked about the role of uh, folk songs in protest, he said, the role of folk songs in protest is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. And I think that's what I want this book to do, to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Because it's, you know, it's it's about pushing on. It's about saying, your customers, your employees, the world deserves better. Let's move. Fantastic, and um, we share that uh, as a company that's embedded in in music and and the consumption of amazing music that we really feel because we can see pictures, but where the magic happens is when you feel it, and that comes through the sound and your experience leadership that is inspired by punk music revolution. Um, there's, a, there's a commonality there, and it's been fantastic to talk about it. If people want to buy the book, available on Amazon. Yeah, it's on and Amazon, that's it, and, and all over the place. Um, but the best place is for Amazon, love them or hate them, as, as, you, as per your want, it's, it's on there. Um, and if you want to find out more about kind of me, then just put Adrian Swinsco into your favorite search engine and you'll find me. Excellent. Adrian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining the Iris pod. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks, Tommy. I look forward to it. Thank you. And thank you everyone for joining the Iris pod again. We'll have more great content coming very soon.